0: Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast.
1: Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to this University of Bath Institute for Policy Research uh, seminar. My name is Nick Pierce. I'm a professor of public policy at the university uh, and I'm hosting today uh, the launch of uh, the book. I think you can see in front of you. I hope you can. The Death of Human Capital, its failed promise and how to renew it in an Age of Disruption, published by Oxford University Press, and the three authors of the book are with us today to discuss its content. Uh, They are Hugh Lauder, who's a Professor of Education and Political Economy uh, at the University of Bath, colleague of mine at the University, Uh, Phil Brown, Philip Brown, who's Distinguished Research Professor in the School of Social Sciences at Cardiff University, Uh, and Sin Yi Chung, who's Professor of Sociology in the School of Social Sciences at Cardiff University too. And uh, they're here to discuss this book, which has this rather provocative uh, um, title, The Death of Human Capital. Um, Most people I know watching this will be aware of uh, the importance, uh, even the sort of dominance of human capital theory in much education and skills policy in recent uh, decades, indeed central also to economic policy. The idea that um, if you increase people's education and skills, you increase uh, their productivity, you increase their earnings, Uh, you increase the uh, overall performance of your economy. And it's that thesis uh, that this book sets out to challenge, and uh, I'm not going to say more, I'll leave it to our authors to tell you uh, their argument, Uh, but it's an important one. It has lots of implications, I think, for a number of areas of policy. If indeed we're seeing a different way of thinking about education and skills. It has many implications for how we think about social, economic uh, and other public policies. Um, Following the presentation, following the presentation of these ideas, uh, I'm also delighted to say we'll be joined by Professors uh, Hewitt Keep and Lisa Wheelahan. Uh, Hewitt is a a Professor in Education, Training and Skills at the Department for Education at Oxford University, where he was one of the founders and directors of the uh, Centre for Skills, Knowledge and Organisational Performance. Uh, And Lisa Wheelahan is Professor in the Department of Leadership Higher and Adult Education at the University of Toronto. So she joins us uh, at what is just after nine o'clock in Canada. So uh, a big welcome to you, Lisa. So thank you all for joining us. Uh, and I'll now um, kick off our webinar by handing over to uh, uh, Phil Brown, Phil. Nick, thanks very
2: much. Um, and thanks everybody for attending. I know it's yet another occasion where you have to sit in front of your computers, uh, probably in the same room you've been in since March. Um, so it's, it's, uh, we're really delighted that you're able to join us for this book launch. I poured myself a glass of wine uh, to have by myself here, just as a kind of celebration, um, because this book has been quite a long time in the making. Hugh and I, uh, in finishing the global auction, thought, wouldn't it be a good idea to write something on human capital? You know, especially because out of that previous book, we kind of felt, well, we need a paradigm change. And human capital is one of those concepts which is so important in terms of policy that we should really have a crack at that. Um, so we started that process and we, we invited Cindy uh, in and we were delighted that she joined us on this project. Um, but the problem was that the, as soon as we started to delve into notions of human capital, we just realized how daunting this task was because it's got a long history. Uh, Nobel prizes have been awarded on the on the back of this kind of work. And that's not easy to Usurp. It's not easy to really get behind the ideas because a paradigm shift it, it involves not just showing what's wrong, that kind of critical anomalies like learning isn't earning for a lot of people, but also it's about proposing new ideas, new new concepts and theories. So, so actually, um, this was this was a fundamental change, and it also explains why why we organised the book as we did. It's in three parts. So the first bit is about the rise of human capital, those ideas that, that uh, shape the theory. And Hugh will talk a bit about that in a moment. And then we've got a section on the failed promise of human capital. And Sin will say a little bit about some of that. And then the third section is really trying to rethink what do we mean by supply? What do we mean by demand? What do we mean by rewards? And what would a new, new kind of theory of human capital really look like? And one of the fundamental challenges of anybody writing a book like this, as we all know, is that how do you communicate it? How do you really capture the ideas in a way that that people can really grasp and understand? And I think for us, the breakthrough came when we made a distinction between labor scarcity and job scarcity. So labor scarcity is consistent with uh, orthodox theory, where the focus is on individual investment in education and skills, that seem to have value to employers and that is seen to continue over time uh, whereas job scarcity is really a focus on on the if you like the economic incapacity problem That can we generate enough of the, of the jobs that people want given the expansion of education and it seemed to us also that when we look at the the kind of impact of new technologies that these problems are likely to be exacerbated rather than alleviated by digital uh, innovations. So for us, that question of job scarcity was at the center of our thinking about a different version of human uh, capital. Because as soon as you begin to think in job scarcity terms, then a number of things follow. Firstly, that it's not an age of human capital, as Becker argued. There was no power shift towards knowledge workers. Capital continues to trump labor, regardless of how qualified people are, that's true for most people, um, because most of the productive value that we've seen in recent decades has gone to a few, not to to the majority and not to qualified labour in any straightforward uh, way. Labour scarcity is also then the exception rather than the rule. So it's not the place to start, especially in a context context of, of mass higher education. That doesn't mean that education skills are not important, they are, but the way in which we might think about them has to change under a job scarcity model. Thirdly, it means that we have to re-examine human beings and their relationship to capital. People are not human capital, but they engage in a process of capitalization, of capitalizing on some of their assets and, and skills, uh, and that's the bit that we really t- need to try to problematize because it's that translation work um, in that relationship between education and employment that we need to explore. and of course that is more or less fair and successful um, for people depending upon their social positions, et cetera, et cetera. Also, what we could argue is that the underutilization of human talents, is actually the norm in a context of mass higher education. And what that also means is we need to think about other avenues for the expression of our talents outside of wage work, as well as trying to improve the quality of work, which is not lost on us at all. We see that as being crucial, but it's that broader contextualization of of work and what that means um, and human talents that we need to, to explore. And the final point there is is, is really that um, job scarcity points to this overburden on the labour market, um, because it seems to be unable to reconcile the policy rhetoric of of learning equals earning. And so for us, we need to think, okay, well, how is the labour market going to operate in the future? What is the role of, for example, a, a basic income? How might that help? in terms of delivering social justice and fairness, as well as improving the quality of life. Uh, So those sorts of issues we wanted to raise um, in the book. And finally, um, we also, um, in reflecting about, really what this book is about, there seems to be um, three grand challenges that it it presents. Um, The first of these is really an educational challenge. That is, what is the nature of human educational purpose in a context of advanced technologies? What is that really going to to mean? So we need need to put the human back into human capital. What kind of people do we want to create? What kind of of socialization process? What kind of, of, of sense of purpose, what kind of sense a reward and contribution do we want to 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 really think about in what kind of world and i think this becomes particularly important when you think about the context of of, of covid so there's a there's a rather fundamental educational challenge of not seeing simply as education for employability the second challenge is really around technology uh and 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 we try to grapple a bit with this in 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 the book because the question is when we've got AI, if AI gets increasingly smart, um, then what really is the future of work? And how are, how are companies and employers actually using those technologies? Are they using it to augment skill or to de-skill? And this, this poses a pretty fundamental challenge for us, for us all, um, but the technology is not fate. So the, courts, the sorts of ideas that we have about human capability, about what is a quality job, about how rewards should be distributed. That is actually part and parcel of this discussion about the new human capital. And that relates to the final challenge, and, and that is around inequality. And there seem to be three interrelated inequalities that we need to try to grasp. One is, who learns what? and when. So this is about educational inequalities, but also it relates to issues of lifelong learning and access to training, which has become much more problematic. The second really is about who does what, about the opportunities to capitalise, about how we're going to organise and distribute work, as well as educational opportunities. And the third is really about who gets what. How do we create or how do we think about a shared prosperity? What is then social justice? How do those things relate one to the other? Because really, unless we grasp these sorts of issues, we're not going to have the kind of, um, of paradigm shift that we now think we need. And we, we, we sit here today um, knowing that, for example, in the UK, that um, GDP per capita uh, has fallen more this year than it's done for 300 years, proportionally. Um, So how do we begin to respond to that? How do we build back better? Well, we do that by thinking quite radically, I think. And that's what this book tries to present. So um, the key point is, in a sense, we're running out of time. We were arguing about this before, or arguing this before um, COVID and, that just adds to the sense of of urgency. So uh, I'll stop there and pass on to Hugh.
3: Thanks, Phil. Um, I'm going to pick up on a couple of points that Phil's made uh, and just start actually with another anecdote about the journey we've taken over nine years. Um, It's taken us a long time for many reasons, but we started well. We started in a wine bar in New York with James Cook, uh, our editor, Uh, This was after the death of human capital. And it was his enthusiasm for the idea of this book um, that really got us going. So um, we need to thank James for that kind of support, which he has shown the whole way through this very long journey. Another part of this journey which has held us up is that every time one of us has given a seminar on our thinking about this book, economists have popped up and said, "Ah, but you've forgotten X or we've moved on from X to Y, you're out of date. Um, We now think that we've absolutely nailed it. We are no longer out of date. Um, We're actually the being people right now, as it were. Um, However, I'm sure there'll be an economist somewhere who will tell us that we're out of date. But the issues that Phil points to are broad. And it is a broad kind of thinking that we require if we're going to radically address the issues which we now confront. And there are two that I want to pick up on that Phil has uh, talked about. Um, the first one is to do with the issue of how we understand the labor market. And in our view, orthodox economics is far too narrow with that. And that is a point that, for example, feminists have made in relation to reproduction and to issues of care for a very long time, uh, with which we absolutely agree. But What we're talking about here is the notion of contribution rather than just income. Income is far too narrow a measure um, and a reward uh, for the human contribution that people make. And that includes, of course, includes care. But when you look at this pandemic and you look at how many people we've now understood are vital to the ongoing development of this economy during the pandemic and how much uh, or how little they actually earn, there's a real discussion to be had about the nature of contribution and how it should be acknowledged. So contribution is a really important part of the book as we uh, develop it. And the other point is about education. And it's very clear that in a world in which the labor market is increasingly uncertain for many as it is right now for young people, then we need to understand that the education that we offer it has to be much broader. It cannot be just a narrow teaching to the test type of education. And it's never been explained to us, by the way, why teaching to the test is somehow meant to be economically leading to productivity. So those sorts of gaps are ones that we explore in the book. So having made those general comments, I now want to turn to some of the more particular criticisms that we make. And Nick, in fact, gave us the perfect in here. Um, in his very brief introduction. The first thing about human capital theory and its followers, like skill bias technical change theory, is that they assume that technology will raise near infinitely the demand for high skilled workers. And Sinyi will demonstrate that that is not the case. The second um, assumption that human capital theory makes is that the better educated people are, uh, the more productive they are. And actually, when you look now at measures of productivity, both in the United States and in Britain, and indeed in many other countries of the world, we have better educated, more educated populations than we've ever had. Um, And yet productivity is flatlining or very low indeed. So there's a fundamental puzzle there that human capital theory just hasn't addressed. And the third is that under human capital theory, employers are seen as rational actors, and they will therefore recruit and appoint the most able, irrespective of class, creed, color. And that is simply not the case. And as Sinyi will demonstrate, uh, the labor market is absolutely shot through with inequalities and they also need to be addressed. And Phil has mentioned some of the ways in which we are trying to address those. So if they are the assumptions that are made, then we need to dig a little deeper now and look, for example, at the theories of causation, which um, those assumptions are translated into. And here there are two key theories of causation and they very often go hand in hand. So the first one is, and it's known as Say's law, but basically it says that supply will generate its own demand. And when you look at um, education policy in this country, as in many others, The government has clearly assumed that if more and more people are highly educated, the demand for their productivity will will be there. It'll be, the employers will respond with that. And that's just not the case. We know that because that's precisely why we have a fundamental problem in terms of the shortage of well-paid jobs, high-skilled, well-paid jobs. So the other, theory of causation has to do with supply and demand. And interestingly, in some of the more recent books in Human Capital and skill bars Technical Change Theory, the latter is a rather long term, um, and it basically just means um, technology will drive up the demand for labor, uh, skilled labor. Uh, and it's a kind of progeny of human capital theory. Um, an example of that which uses this, uh, this kind of forms of uh, causation is that by Golden and Katz in a, in a book, um, which at the time was very eminent, on technology and education, in which they argued that the reason why there were inequalities in the labor market was to do with um, the fact that there weren't enough supplied skilled labor to, uh, in, to reduce the income of the few that had got highly skilled, were highly skilled in education and could then turn that into rewards in the labor market. So the idea was um, if you great more people with higher skills, um, then you'll get a reduction in income um, inequality. And again, as Phil's pointed out, that is simply not the case because it's the top 10, the top 1% who have actually creamed off the productivity of other people. So we then investigate these notions of causation. And the fundamental problem that leads to are methodological problems. And there are two that we'll point out through here. The first is to do with the fact that it's rather simplistic account in many of the studies of human capital theory is that there is a correlation between education and uh, income or returns to the labor market. And that is a kind of mono account which when we really begin to explore that simply doesn't stand up. The second um, point, and it's one that I'll hand over to Sinyi to elaborate upon is that in fact, instead of looking just at the median or the average returns on say graduate education as opposed to a non-graduate education, which has been the predominant way of doing things methodologically for orthodox economists, we need to disaggregate the data Unfortunately, they're catching up on a kind of view and argument that Phil and I have advanced for many years now. And I shall now hand over to Xin Yi, who will now, as it were, put uh, flesh on the bones of this theoretical skeleton that I've been talking about.
4: Thank you very much, Phil and Hugh, for that um, very clear and succinct summary of what it's actually quite a long book. Um, I don't have a lot of time. So instead of um, uh, drowning, drowning you with lots of tables and numbers, I'm going to use a few graphs to illustrate some of the arguments we put across. And um, so the first one, um, the, the central tenet of the human capital theory argument is the univers- univers- universality of the claims they make, is that more education equals higher income. And it promises on a number of levels, individual, family and national level. So in the middle part of the book, we we try to tackle uh, these claims uh, one by one uh, at the individual level, um, whether learnings equals earnings. And it it actually sets um, here. The graph shows men and women's income. I use the same Y axis. So you can see women are consistently earning lower. Uh, having lower hourly earnings. this is the U.S. data from over a decade, over four decades, from 1970s, before the the, uh, the uh, um, in, uh, around the, the 1970s recession to 2010, um, after the 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 recent 2008 recession. So uh, over time, you can see the the the, the earnings. For graduates and high school, uh, college, high school leavers, uh, they're, uh, they're pretty stagnant. Um, there's in in real um, in real terms and um, US dollars, two thousand and nine, these um, earnings per hour hadn't actually shot up as uh, economic growth, or, or you would expect um, people will earn more uh, forty years later compared to the nineteen uh, seventies. So. The, the main story to take home from this graph is uh, most of the median college graduates. Um, lower means in the lower ten percent of the distribution. Medium is the medium, uh, M is the medium, and, and H is the highest ten percent of the distribution of the graduates, uh, uh, college graduates earning. So you can see that only the top ten percent of graduates actually uh, are, are way above earning a lot. So they they actually are the winners. And, and, and the others, uh, you see this main cluster of uh, lines in the middle and at the bottom. So, in, in short, a median college graduate is earning less uh, across the 40 years uh, compared to a high school uh, lever. And and so what is the point of going to college and make all that individual family investment in in higher education? And then we actually separated the community college graduates. So these are, we are talking about college, four year college graduates. Um, So in fact, it is one of the the, the, uh, pay stagnation over time. So, What about other uh, dimensions of what we call the distributional inequalities? Once you started to disaggregate the data, we see a very different picture rather than just presenting the the, the uh, overall average uh, median. And we, we tried everything mean obviously is is subjected to, uh, it is often subject to um, outliers, statistical very high earners or very low, low ones, so you use the median, which is a slightly better representation, but, but without actually disaggregating into different decile and 10 percentiles, and you, you, you're still masking a lot of what we call distributional inequalities. So we see the the, the persistent inequalities between men and women, despite the massive gain, and and women outperform men on all counts educationally, and they still earn much less uh, per hour. And the the similar pattern is across Europe, uh, very much the same in other developed countries. So when it comes to uh, racial inequalities, um, these two graphs summarise it very well. Um, Over the same 40 years period, we see the Chinese and Japanese are massively overtaken uh, non-Hispanic whites uh, in the US in terms of gaining a four-year college degree. And on the right-hand side of the chart, you see that a very different picture. And these are the percentage of unemployed uh, US graduates by race. So despite outperforming their white counterparts, Chinese and and Japanese actually have higher proportion of unemployed graduates. And and, and, and not not to mention the Blacks, Native Americans and Latin Americans are, are trailing very far behind. So, moving swiftly on, and this is uh, 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 about learning not equals to earning. So, on the right hand, left hand side of the um, the chart is college graduates, um, and on the right hand side of the chart is high school high school uh, leavers. So, this is actually showing um, college median uh, earners, college college graduates on the right hand side we see the top 10%, 90% uh, percentile high school leavers. So over the three, over the four decades, high school leavers again consistently earning uh, a a fair chunk more um, compared to college median uh, graduates. So of course, and and again, you won't see these if you don't disaggregate the data the way we do. that is in a nutshell showing that investment in education at the individual family level doesn't pay for everyone you, you, you we're talking about the one percent the top ten percent so returns to so-called human capital investment is far far worse for um, these uh, middle columns blacks native americans and uh, latin americans they go to the same type of um, a four-year college and yet the outcomes are are, couldn't be more starkly different so what about on the national level the the universal universal claims that human about human capital theory is about not only individuals will get uh, richer by having higher earnings and productivity and and in the labor market but also if you invest wisely Uh, in education uh, as a country, it promotes economic growth. Now, is that true? So we actually delve into the data. This very quick summary of um, government expenditure on education as a share of the GDP shows, um, you can actually do this yourself from the um, uh, World Bank uh, data. Uh, um, Well well in data, um, I got a web link here countries like low-income countries and middle-income countries like Kenya, Malaysia, Morocco consistently spend much higher proportion of their GDP in education than high-income countries, which is the middle line, the middle dotted line is the average of high-income country spending. And and compared to Taiwan, South Korea and India and and China. So they spend much more on education and doesn't make their national wealth higher so it's a, it's, a, it's a very, very stark message for national wealth and economic growth when you invest in, in um, education. Hanushek and Wolfsman wrote this book uh, about knowledge capital. They argue fervently, and very you couldn't, and you can't actually underestimate the influence these uh, economies in the thinking of World Bank, OECD, and in fact, a lot of government policies in terms of investing massively in education in the hope that that will bring economic growth and national wealth. Now, then they use PISA data and, and they talk about the East Asian miracle and the Latin American puzzle. So despite they invest in so much in education, why aren't they richer? So the answer, we try to tackle some of these arguments in the book and and, you have to read it, (laughs) I haven't got time to go into it. But basically the the story is it doesn't pay because human capital theory uh, was written in in an age that before international mass migration, people actually leave their country. A lot of these countries invest heavily in education and they don't need to stay, they they go where the jobs are so where they don't, in the Indian software engineer working in um, Sunny, Sunnyvale, Sunnyvale, Sunnyvale in California. Um, am I right about that area? Uh, and certainly in California. And, and, and earning about a third or a fraction of the wages of uh, native US software engineers. It's a, it's a classic case. And, and some of these um, engineers describe their uh, the, the work in very well paid compared to back home in India as uh, indentured labor. And, and it, it, it's, it's, it, it's just the extent to which that this human arbitrage uh, we observe, it, it doesn't mean investment in education guarantee economic growth even in an, in an, uh, uh, at a national level. So we see all these trends both in how human capital theory failed to deliver on both individual, family, and, and institution on national level. But that's why we fundamentally need to rethink about the, uh, the relationship between education in the economy and the labor market. And we, we need to not throw the baby out of the bathwater, but re- regenerate a new human capital theory, and, uh, and which I believe uh, we um, had go some way, went some way to um, uh, deliver in the book and, and so that we don't actually end on a depressive note. And I also, um, to wrap up, I wanted to thank um, uh, uh, Professor Nick Pearce and, and the Institute for Public Policy at organising this uh, book launch for us. Very grateful for our commentators coming, coming to talk about uh, their thoughts. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Well, thank you. Um, I've been asked to make some, uh, a response, or at least a starter response. Um, to um, uh, what, 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 what we've heard the three authors um, talk about in terms of what the book covers. Um, and I guess my sort of first point is by uh, to, to offer uh, congratulations to Phil Hugh and Yi on, on completing this really quite mammoth piece of research and writing. And <laughs> having read the, the, the book um, already uh, in draft, Uh, I can say that I I think the result is a volume that makes a a really fundamental contribution to how we think about investment in education and what that investment can deliver. And I would like to believe that this book um, will change over time how a lot of policy is being framed, because the book delivers a a highly critical analysis of one of the central tenets, um, which is human capital theory. That's underpinned what what William Norton Grubb once dubbed um, the gospel of vocationalism, uh, a belief that uh, the simple linear relationship between increasing stocks of human capital in the workforce and subsequent productivity growth. And <laughs> there are really numerous examples of papers and books and articles uh, making that kind of um, assumption. Uh, for example, there's, there's one which uh, is quite often uh, quoted in e- English higher education policy, uh, by Holland et al in 2013 that said that a 1% increase in the share of the workforce qualified to degree level will raise long-run productivity by 0.2 to 0.5% over a two-year period. That's, that's quite a high degree of <laughs> supposed accuracy um, and many, many white papers and other policy statements have used that kind of projection um, and suggestion uh, to justify spending on higher education. And underlying all of this is a belief that participation in education leads to achievement. Achievement leads to qualification acquisition, which is a proxy for skill acquisition, which leads to productivity growth, which leads to wage gain. Um, And if the world were that simple, uh, it would be a much happier place than it is because Unfortunately, the equals um, in that um, sequence that I've just described are, are fairly conditional. <coughs> we've followed human capital theory fairly fairly slavishly in England um, for the last 35 years. Um, and when you look at the, the results across um, England and the rest of the UK, uh, we've had uh, a genuine skills revolution, which we probably don't really recognize as much as we ought to. Um, In 1979, just 11% of the UK workforce had a degree or sub-degree qualification or its equivalent, and 45% of the workforce had no qualifications whatsoever. They'd left school early, uh, they'd left at 15, and they had never acquired a qualification. Well, now those ratios are more or less uh, reversed. About 42%, probably slightly more now, of the workforce in the UK have a degree or equivalent, and just 8% of the workforce have no qualifications. So the taxpayer and increasingly students have funded a a, a massive, profound skills revolution. But the anticipated shift to a high wage, high, high productivity, high innovation, high quality paradigm did not occur. And I think that the the, the death of human capital helps explain this massive failure of policy um, very helpfully. Why did things fail? Well, I guess they failed for a variety of reasons, but the death of human capital um, in its introduction actually starts with I think one that's really important, certainly to me coming at this from an industrial relations and um, personnel management perspective. In the introduction on the first page, in fact, the introduction, Theodore W. Schultz's um, 1960 prediction that human capital theory would mean that labor ceased to be treated as a mere factor of production like land, plant or factories is is mentioned. Well, I guess the reality is that all of the research that's been done in recent years, not least on low paid employment in the UK, uh, would show that in far too many firms, labor remains a factor of production or a cost to be contained. Um, and one can see many examples of that in our platform economy employers who, who have driven down wages, removed terms and conditions, and uh, reduced uh, you know, the employment relationship to a highly casualized labour by the minute model. Um, <coughs> that's not at all helpful, uh, and it's certainly not what human capital theory intended or expected. And I think what's also important about the book is that it offers a way out of this failure. Now, it doesn't simply provide a critique. Uh, It provides a means to reframe how we think about education, training and skills, and thus help ensure that people fulfill their potential and utilize their human capabilities. Uh, It provides a means for the um, people management function in organizations to push back against the labor as a cost model and to reimagine how training and development policies within organizations can be constructed. How I wonder will economists um, face up to the challenge uh, which uh, the book offers to their their orthodox thinking? Well, if the past is any guide, um, I think the answer may be that they'll try to deal with it by refusing to address it Uh, because anyone who reads mainstream economics output on, on human capital and skills has probably been struck by the paucity uh, within it of any references to work that have emerged from disciplines uh, outside economics, such as sociology, education, or or even any of the management disciplines. (coughs) However, whatever economists do or don't do, my message is really simple. Everyone with an interest in education, training, and skills needs to read this volume and to reflect on where we go next in terms of policy, because it's very clear that human capital theory and the kind of policies it's inspired have run their course. We are at the end of a cul-de-sac and we need to adopt a very different direction. Um, So that's my response to the book. And finally, I I have to um, end with an apology, which is that I'm I'm going to have to go in a minute uh, because I'm already late for another seminar. I've been delighted to speak at this event and I very much hope that this book is widely read and used in teaching uh, and in inspiring um, further scholarship in an area that's of critical
1: importance. Uh, Thanks. Lisa, over to you.
5: Okay look, um, well thank you very much for the invitation to participate in this um, event. I'm really keen because I, Um, As Hugh will know, I've been nagging him for a long time um, about this book um, and and about when it's going to come out and I've been waiting um, because I knew that it would inform my own writing and teaching. I think one of the things that I'm most pleased about is that it will help me to convince PhD students who come to me and say they want to do a PhD and they define the problem as the skills gap um, because colleges and universities don't teach the right skills. Um, and I try to convince them that that's not the problem. The problem is the structures of the labor market. And it's very difficult to do that given the orthodoxy, given the prevalence of, and uh, sheer weight um, of, uh, you, know, you know, taken for granted assumptions under human um, capital theory. So this book will be the first thing they're going to need to read if they're going to do a PhD with me. I think the work in the book um, brings together a number of strands uh, and many years of research and it's very convincing and very compelling and it's going to be a key book in our sector. One thing that I found particularly helpful in helping me think through work I'm doing right now um, is that the first thing it does um, in the book is explain why we have a problem with human capital theory and then to carefully dissect the different variants of human capital theory between the orthodox approach and the skill bias technological camp. Um, And that's helpful, I mean, because this this slight family tiff um, between the two is helpful in thinking through the the, the, the tensions at the moment between about micro-credentials and the desire to credential everything on the one hand include there's an enormous amount of policy energy um, going into how can we credential micro-credentials? How can we accredit them? How can we include include them in, um, in qualifications frameworks on the one hand? And then on the other hand, the idea that the focus is on skills, what matters is skills um, and so there is a real tension between those two camps. And I think that that's a reflection of that um, family TIF. It, but it also raises um, the question of what qualifications are and what they signify. And I think they, they should signify something important. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But I think micro-credentials are the end point of the problems outlined in the book, even though the book doesn't directly discuss them. It gives a very clear framework for thinking about them. Micro credentials are gig credentials for the gig economy based on methodological individualism, where everything can be broken down into tiny parts and then reassembled. And this, and this will, we've seen that this will fragment jobs. Um, for example, one of my PhD graduates studied the construction industry in British Columbia and Canada and found that at the time of the introduction of competency based training combined with the abolition of um, compulsory qualifications for the trades, it led to new occupations like stairmaker um, instead of um, carpenter. So it leads to the fragmentation of occupations as well. The, uh, it's clear that human capital theory doesn't work. We've been trying to convince people in Australia for years um, that that's the case. And, and I mean, the, the most clear evidence of that is that in Australia, in the vocational education sector, which is based on competency-based training, so qualifications are directly aligned to tasks and roles and jobs, only 28% of graduates any year end up working in the jobs for which they've been qualified, 28%. Um, and this is all based on the notion that the market uh, is going to sort it out. I think Australia takes things a lot further than even in the UK. Um, Uh, Although they uh, policy borrow from each other quite a lot because Australia's view is that not only should um, um, students be preparing for the market, but that education itself should be a market, you know, a ruthless market. Um, And this has had disastrous effect on public colleges in Australia and brought them to the brink of collapse, whereas in in one state, for example, colleges now only deliver 30 per cent of publicly funded provision. And this is based on a circular logic. I put this to some um, bureaucrats in a a productivity commission, which is a sort of neoliberal um, uh, government think tank where they're doing a policy on vocational education. I asked them, what evidence would it take for you to think that the market is the problem? what would it take, you know, like, uh, despite the overwhelming evidence? And they, the, the question didn't compute. They couldn't understand it. Well, of course you just fix things, right? And so, so the, the notion is, if you believe that the market is the only way to distribute access to all resources, including social resources, and it's not working, then there must be a problem with the settings. So you fix the settings, you tweak the settings, you overhaul the settings, you tweak them again, and this is an endless loop which uh, um, which one can't break out of. And that's the loop that policy is in at the moment. So the book gives us a set of theoretical tools which are underpinned by empirical evidence in breaking out of this stupid circle. Um, I, I really like the way in which the book puts the individual at the center and they're flourishing at the center while demonstrating the pitfalls of methodological individualism and the orthodoxy uh, or of of orthodox human capital theory. It has a bankrupt view of the individual. So one of my favorite authors is C.B. McPherson, um, who was writing in the 1960s. um, And and he he refers to the individual as the the bourgeois possessive individual of of liberalism. And he says that the liberal individual is premised on, on a conception of individuals as owners of their own capacities and person who therefore owe nothing to society for the conditions of their existence or for the development of their capabilities. He says the individual was seen neither as a moral whole nor as part of a larger social whole, but as an owner of himself. Individuals are proprietors of their persons and society consists of relations of exchange between proprietors. And I think that's a lovely quote in thinking about um, the kinds of problems um, that we face today. As you know, the, the logical conclusion of that is that the self can only be realized in a market. Um, And that's why it's an impoverished self. And another favorite actor of mine, Bourdieu, uh, author of mine, he explains that the, Bourdieu explains that the actor of human capital theory, basically it's an ethnocentric concept. um, uh, uh, And it's an ethnocentric universalization of historically specific period of human motivation. And that's really helpful in the book because the book does do that. The book goes through, um, the, you know long historical periods to um, explain um, some of these problems. And so he, he says of, of human capital types of ideas, he says that all the capacities and dispositions that liberally grants to its abstract actor, the art of estimating and taking chances, the ability to anticipate through a kind of practical induction, the capacity to bet on the possible against the probable for a measured risk, the propensity to invest, access to economic information, etc., can only be acquired under definite social and economic conditions. And yet, this is what we're asking people to do today, particularly the people who are least equipped um, to do that. And this makes a lot of sense, um, I think, of the whole notion of market ready, um, uh, of market readiness um, that's discussed in the book. People have to be market ready, they have to be. Um, ready to hit the ground running. And one thing that I I wanna, I think that um, I'll I'll finish on is a really important part of the book for me was the discussion on the role and nature of education. I've been worrying for a long time um, that those of us who've been critiquing orthodox approaches um, didn't really have a good argument for what education should look like and, and why or how it matters. I mean, why should we be saying that people should go to university or college if it's not gonna get them a direct job, if that's what the point is. And, and, the, and I think there's a lot of authors who've got the idea that no, none of this is working, therefore the solution is we don't need more education. Um, and I've found that deeply problematic and undemocratic. Um, and so it, it's, it's, lead, it, it's, it, it, it's leading to people to say, we have over-credentialing, therefore shut it down. I don't accept that at all. I think we've got a distorted notion of qualifications based on human capital theory, and that's the problem. And the response is that qualifications are much broader and prepare people for life, as Dewey explained. Um, I mean, he explained that we may call a person a baker, but they, they, and, and that's how they may be known, but they are also a political being, a member of their community, a member of their family, a member of all of those things. So the book situates education in these broader overlapping institutional context in which education is situated and it, and it demonstrates the interdependencies between social inequality, gender and race and what it would take to begin to address these problems. And it's enormously um, useful. The only thing I disagree with is the claim that's made where um, Nespresso could possibly produce as good a coffee as a barista. I think that's just wrong. Um, so so that's my only point um, of disagreement. I think it's an excellent book. It opens opportunities to explore problems and what we need to do about them. And it does provide direction for policymakers and schol- um, scholars and I'm very glad it's published now. Thank you.
1: Great, well, thanks very much indeed. And um, uh, I'd like, we've got some questions in the Q and A I'd like to turn to and a couple first, the ones that have most recently come in one from a colleague of ours at the University of Bath, Matt Dixon, who's basically saying, um, you know, in defense of at least to think about human capital theory m- more broadly, um, you know, we know that education does provide returns, not just in earnings, or certainly if we were only focused narrowly on median earnings, but in things like employment probability, job security, occupational prestige, job satisfaction, etc. So how far, just a first question to our authors, how far does the, the evidence you cite touch on those questions about the relationship between education levels and job security, satisfaction, prestige, and so on?
4: We're waiting. So I'll, I'll try to uh, take that one. Um, I think I, I have Matt, uh, met uh, Matt um, in one of the workshops a few years ago now. So hello, Matt. If you're in the room, I can't see you. I can't see people. Um, uh, I, I think we we are on the same page uh, when we come to think about the, what we would call non-economic returns to education. But the... the um, and Phil and and Hugh can come in if I'm not doing a very good job with this question, but I haven't actually read any economist uh, uh, writing about uh, these non non-econom- economic non economic returns to education. And uh, if you if you if you invest more in education, you get better health, and and you eat better, you 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 live longer, and and of course, and there is lots of whole host of benefits of. Uh, education. I think in the Institute of Education a while while back, they have uh, two centers, economic uh, benefits of education and and, and social benefits of education. So, but fundamentally, the the, the link between earnings uh, and and explained by by learning education has so fundamentally driven all these education and um, skills and training policy and a supranational level. And that's the, the, the central argument we're trying to tackle, um, we're focusing on. Not to say that no, there has, obviously there has, all these other research has proven that there are other benefits of education. And that's in the way we're trying to build on the, those aspects of the, uh, of, of, uh, the quality and, and, and the essence and, and the value of the education. Hey, let's not forget these other sides. But fundamentally, because education it's been, has been used investment in education has been used in such a powerful p- argument to to invest more and more and more, and, and the promise is because you actually get um, better wealth both an individual and and the national level, and that that's just the, the 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 argument we're focusing on. We we haven't actually uh, de- we are not denying and and or, or ignoring some of these other other, but I don't think those others. Uh, key arguments economists are trying to push and 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 if, if I misread that and that will be just be my limitation
1: okay thanks very much uh, phil yeah. yeah yeah just just
2: very quickly to add to that I um, so yeah our focus was more on learning equals earnings that's where we put a lot of our efforts but when this broader the broader kind of um, social idea of social returns I mean that's obviously quite an important part of the argument for us, that we need to think about a different kind of, if you like, a different index. What kind of of measures might we have to capture a new human capital? And it has to be a lot wider than that. It would have to cover these these issues of of contribution. Um, But also that that sense of, um, of meaning for individuals beyond simply how much they can earn. Um, so we're not in any way sort of want to play down some of the benefits of education and its relationship to the economy, but we want to broaden we want to broaden out that discussion. And if we had more time, we spent nearly <laughs> ten years, so I think that's probably long enough. But if we had more time, then I think the, the issue about how we might come up with an index uh, of of a, of this new human capital is is actually quite an interesting question and. Um, it is maybe something we might want to pursue because i think those wider benefits issues are are, are important
1: okay thank you phil hugh yeah come
3: in yeah uh, just very quickly matt i mean one way of uh, viewing the question is the way that andrew schleicher and the oecd handle the kind of uh, problems that we've raised with them and they go ah oh, yes well you might not earn so much but at least you'll be employed But they don't tell you what kind of employment you're going to get. So to me, that's the kind of last refuge of a failing um, theory. Um, That's just uh, my slightly lopsided view of the matter.
1: That partly answers, I think, one of the questions we have here, which is, you know, can you use things like the PISA tests, Andrea Schleier and others, uh, for capturing this broader notion of education. Phil touched on the idea of an index. Um, that might all relate, relate to kind of capabilities thinking about, you know, that Amartya Sen and others have used to sort of measure real human development rather than simply economic growth. Um, uh, there is a, a couple of questions, though, which I'd like to come to, which um really relate to this question of uh, the relationship between uh, market economies, capitalist economies, and the supply of education and skills. So so w- one take on your argument by, might be that since the 1970s, at least, and perhaps uh, you know, there's, there's a wider explanation, but since the 1970s, capitalism has changed to the degree that it's generated more inequality. That it's found ways of uh, reducing workers' rights. It's found ways of undermining trade unions, uh, of of of, um, uh, of of widening inequalities between workers in different roles and so on. Uh, and 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 therefore, that the idea that education and skills uh, and their supply. Um, uh, is the problem, rather than what capitalism has done to the use of those skills and the other things that have happened in market economies uh, to mean that people's skills and education are no longer simply uh, uh, sufficient for them to capture the, the value in their work and so on. And so I want to impart how much of your argument is about all this supply and skills didn't lead to these outcomes that were predicted, or, or, or versus We've had a big supply of skills, but capitalism has done a lot of other things in the meantime, and it's capitalism that's changed, that sort of, in a way, undermined the premises of human capital theory. Do you see what I'm saying?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And of course, Nick, this is the classic argument from Marx, but it goes through a whole series of um, broader political economists who have argued that capitalism has this ability to undermine itself. And And I think that we address that in the book. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, I think it's a really, it's a really interesting question about that changing nature of capitalism uh, and its relationship to education. We, we spent quite a lot of time in the book trying to think through this question of how capitalism has changed and the historical part of it. We actually explain how human capital theory began in the days of kind of Keynesian welfare state mm. and, it, and it got then transformed uh, in a kind of market context. And if you like it's a naked form because people are then told you know you don't need to worry too much about welfare because there's going to be these really good jobs just focus on your education and and i don't think we actually use the term in the book but you could easily make an argument that there's been a, a betrayal of human capital certainly a betrayal of labor in that a lot of the productivity has been captured by the employers and there's been a whole set of arguments and set of power relations which have developed alongside new technologies which actually exacerbate this problem this concentration of resources at the top end and that makes it really difficult for 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 labor and people with education to actually gain a foothold in the in the labor market let alone in the upper reaches of some of these companies where the real value in terms of money is to be made and and that that for us is a, a pretty fundamental part of what we're arguing and and we do go into some detail in the book on that.
1: Thanks, Phil. Um, I've got a few few other questions. We we won't be able to get through them all, I'm afraid, but I'd I'd like to just try and pick out some themes from them. And some of it comes back to what uh, Lisa was arguing, which is um, uh, we've also, uh, alongside the shift towards uh, increasing uh, credentials and qualifications, you know, we've seen a sort of shift towards uh, valuing certain kinds of uh, qualification. NVQ is a very good example of this in the UK that, you know, you don't need to know what's what knowledge and skills are really underneath you just need to see performance and competency um and and how far uh, is is your is your sort of thesis in the book addressed to kind of um thinking about uh, the use of specific kinds of skills or qualifications versus a sort of general view of human capital so one question says well are there specific jobs that we don't need at high skill levels or we're not paying as much for? Are there specific things like STEM skills where we actually still do really need uh, higher levels of skill and education and those are being rewarded in the labour market? Uh, or, or are we most worried about lower skilled jobs, for example? Um, so I'm just wondering if you could sort of just disaggregate a little bit some of these questions about the, uh, about qualifications, different kinds of work and the education and skills and qualifications related to them.
3: Two, yeah. First, very quickly, I um, mean, the first thing about um, NVQs and that kind of qualification is that basically what you're doing there is not is the exact opposite of what the Germans have done in their training, which is to over-qualify people so that they're much more flexible when new technologies come on board. So there's an issue there about how to educate and train people. Um, which needs a much broader view than the very narrow instrumental view in this country. So that's part of, I think, uh, the issue. The other part of the issue is that many of those questions seem to me to be still rooted in um, human capital theory. So for example, STEM is a puzzle. If you're going to be a mathematician statistician, you've got a good chance of getting a good job. But the majority of STEM graduates don't do STEM work. So. The only justification you might have for STEM then is not in terms of supply and demand, but actually that it, as in Singapore and in East Asia, it's a kind of like a general liberal arts degree, engineering. But otherwise, um, I think what we would, I would ask is, have a look to ask, why did you ask those questions?
2: Uh, Thanks, F- Phil and Cindy, yeah yeah. Yeah, just on the, on the STEM question, I mean, it seems to me that this is a, this is a non-debate um because if you look at what's happened in most jobs well and I, I, we, we've been we've done loads of interviews with with companies over many years and they all say the same thing the technical technical knowledge is not the big problem for us it's the social skills which is the important thing I mean all all technical jobs require good social skills and increasingly what we're seeing is all those jobs that are regarded as part of the humanities and arts and all the rest of it and social sciences now require aspects of STEM because of digital, because of the analytics aspects of this. So the ways in which this has been understood as a separate area is is problematic, but I'd like to just quickly pick up on on Lisa's point about the ways in which people are now being seen in terms of a bundle of skills. And basically we now have the technologies where you can debundle people in terms of technology and you try and put them together. So the companies are running around thinking, okay, how do we identify the skills that we really need? How do we bundle those together? And how do we buy that in real time on a spot market? And I think that this this is something we really need to to think through, and its implications for labour, because it seems to me that one of the big issues then is how are we going to use these new technologies? Is it going to support some kind of of view of human capital the way we're talking about it, which, which might create some job quality and this broader sense of a meaningful life and existence for people, or are we simply going to, to basically divide people up, segment human beings into these range of skills which they're desperately trying to flog to an employer from time to time? I mean it's, this is at the heart of the debate now and, and I think that in a sense is what's at the heart of this book
1: Thanks, Phil. Senior, did you want to come
4: in? Just a very quickly, um, uh, a uh, note to um, what um, the relationship between skill, uh, what is a skilled job, and 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 how much is rewarded in the labour market, and and COVID actually really knocked in the head. The health and social care sector, you need a lot of skills to provide care for the sick and elderly, and yet these are f- consistently the worst, lowest paid job in all the economies that we left right and center so the, the way we think about skills is about time that we fundamentally rethink how we reward different kinds of skills um soft or, or hard skills or stem skills and in the book and we actually disaggregate um uh, wage growth over the 40 40 uh, per- years period of time and the only uh, sectors or, or occupation that actually experience wage growth are lawyers and doctors in the u.s it's not software engineers. It's not scientists. It's not teachers. Not professors. So it really brings it home how the society looks at uh, skills and how we reward skills, and and and, then, and that's why we think it's really high time we we fundamentally relook some of these uh,
1: relationships. Great. Well, thank you very much. Um, we're we're a bit over time, so I'm going to have to bring it to a close. But. Um, I think from that, even from that brief discussion we've had over the last hour or so about the book, there are some really big arguments here um, uh, in this whole question of human capital theory about, not just about education training systems and and labour markets, um, but also about the nature of uh, capitalist market economies, Um, and the ways in which we uh, think philosophically about education, its purposes and its relationship to human flourishing in a future which will be much more technologically rich um, and how those questions of political economy relate to how we think then going back to the purposes of the education of our children, young people and and adult lifelong learning. So some really important questions. And I want to thank uh, Phil, Hugh and Simi, thank also uh, Lisa uh, and Hewitt um, for their comments. really big questions and we're delighted today to have helped you launch this book. I hope everybody uh, watching this today will go away and be be able to read the full text. Uh, I'm sure we'll come back to it again in many debates that we have at the Institute for Policy Research because these are very, very fundamental questions for Uh, our public policy uh, uh, more broadly. So thanks very much Hugh, Phil, and Sin Yi. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, Thank you all for watching us um, today, for for joining in this seminar, and and do keep in touch with us at the Institute for Policy Research for this kind of uh, discussion and debate into the future. Thanks very much indeed.